Good morning, church. Today we're going to wrestle with the single most asked question about religion, about God, the thing that causes more debate, um, more confusion and opinion regarding God than perhaps anything else. Uh, This week is uh, week three of a four-part series called Wrestling with Religion. And when people wrestle with religion, meaning when they ponder it, when they think about it, when they debate it, when they uh, discuss it, when we have those conversations, what we hear are short responses, like short responses that could actually even be summed up in, in one word, words like we saw on that video, one or two words. And, uh, you know, just religion is divisive, we'll hear that, so we address that one, or it's irrelevant, it's outdated. And those one word answers of what we're talking about in this series, in the first week we talked about the idea uh, that is religion really divisive? And uh, we addressed some facts about that. And last week we talked about the word irrelevant, that we hear that God is irrelevant, the church is irrelevant, religion is irrelevant. And we talked about why the world needs the church. And this week we address a word coming from the most asked question about God and religion. The Barna Group did a, a poll a couple of years ago where they asked people, uh, if you could ask God one question, what would it be? Like if you knew uh, that he had to answer, what question would you ask? And so just think about that for a second. What question would you ask? And uh, I even thought about maybe having you guys tell each other what your question would be because uh, I think we get such a variety of responses in this room. If maybe even one by one we each stood up and said what our question to God would be, and uh, knowing a group like this and knowing you guys, there would probably be some very uh, funny questions, things that aren't uh, too serious. There'd be uh, some people in this room uh, who you've got that list in your pocket right now that you would pull out and be ready to ask God some questions. You have that note on your phone. Uh, There'd be some serious ones. There'd be some profound ones. Uh, There'd be some heartbreaking questions. And when this national survey was done, 17% came back with the exact same response worded the exact same way. And then when you combined it uh, categorically of people asking the question different ways, it was much more than that. But that question was, why does God allow suffering? That's a serious question. And I would imagine you've had that same question along the way somewhere. Maybe you haven't asked it that way. Maybe you've asked it uh, why do bad things happen to good, to good people? Like a person who gets sick and then doesn't make it, or a good moral person who uh, becomes the victim of an accident or a crime and, and maybe even loses their life. Where, why are there things like uh, natural disasters, acts of God, we call them, that kill thousands of people? Uh, why are there genocides that have killed millions, terrorism? Why is there suffering? Why does God allow suffering? And it leads us to a word that we're going to wrestle with together now, and that word is inconsistent. Inconsistent. At the end of the day, it just seems inconsistent that these two could both exist, that these two could both exist at the same time. What, what two things? Well, write this in. God exists. We know God exists because something can't come from nothing. We never see that in the world in which we live. We look at the universe, the world, the power of it all, the existence of it all. It was put here on purpose. This is called the contingency argument for the existence of God. 
And we also think, see how things are, are purposed and put together that your body right now is made up of trillions, trillions of cells organized in such a way that it's able to sustain life and support life. This is called the fine-tuning argument for the existence of God. That if you were to go out uh, on a hike in the middle of nowhere, maybe on a mountainside or something, nothing but nature around you, and you were to stumble across a watch, like an Apple watch, you would never in your wildest dreams come to the conclusion that that just arrived there. Like that's proof that someone made that thing. It, it got there uh, somehow. And the same is true about the existence of the universe and, and the world and us. Uh, this is, this, things are fine-tuned. God exists. But we also know that something else exists. And let's go a little bit deeper than the word suffering because suffering encompasses a lot of things. We see all kinds of injustice in the world around us. We see pain, disease, terrorism, natural disasters, hatred, prejudice, racism, uh, corrupt leaders, abusive power, bad things in the world around us. And what causes those things? The cause is evil. Evil causes suffering. And so God exists, but evil exists. And I don't have to convince you of that. Just look at the world around us. And many would say it seems inconsistent that both could exist. And we're left trying to reconcile this. Like, how could a God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, let evil exist? Is the answer that God is not as all-powerful and as all-knowing as we thought he was? Maybe evil is more powerful than God? That's where a lot of people land. Or, or you could... Uh, come to another uh, land in another area that, that maybe God is powerful enough to get rid of it, to eradicate all evil, but he's just choosing not to. So that means that God is not as good and as great and as loving as we thought he was. Where does this inconsistency come from? Why is there evil in the world? And we're going to wrestle with that today. We're going to talk about the origins of evil, what God is up to, what he's going to do with evil. But before we do all that, I want to just pause for a moment because there are many people in this room right now, and especially over the course of five services this weekend, who have suffered greatly. If someone did something evil to you, and maybe you were abused or you were injured in an accident and, and it leaves you with a permanent disability. Uh, you feel the pain every day because of it. And, and for you, this question about evil, this isn't philosophical. This is real. This is not theological. It's not theoretical. You are facing it head on right now. And you're dealing with it. You're dealing with that pain. And many people in our church family I mean, just so far this year, in 2018, have dealt with or are dealing with suffering and the effects of evil. We have people in our church family suffering with loss, from loss of life of a, of a loved one, to loss of, of health, complete loss of their health, to loss of a job or a home, anything in between. People in our church family who are living in the aftermath of abuse and gun violence and grief and offense, and so many things. 
We, people in our church who would say, I'm, I'm the one who's caused suffering in someone's life. And maybe that's you. You wish that wasn't part of your past. You wish that wasn't part of your story, that you have caused harm to someone else. And today we're going to talk about the problem of evil logically, but a logical discussion on evil is not going to take away the pain that you have. We're not going to come uh, to the end of today and say, well, this is why there is evil and I'll leave here, leave here feeling better now. In fact, a logical discussion on evil and suffering when you're facing it could be offensive to you. And I understand why you would feel that way. And I just want to be honest with you that the feelings, the injury, the hurt, the evil that has touched your life, we long to ex have you experience healing and find freedom from those things. In fact, that's often what we do in our messages is we want to bring uh, healing and hope and, and freedom uh, to those painful areas of life. But, but today, we're just going to wrestle with what people have said is inconsistent. And we're going to decide what we believe. And I think that's going to give you a perspective that will be tremendously helpful. But it may not ease the pain. And, and I say that to just help you simply know where we're headed today. Uh, but finding healing and finding freedom from those things is a great desire of ours for you. And that's why at Rockbrook, we long to connect you to a person. This is why we love small groups so much and, and why uh, we encourage you to uh, get involved with a small group. This is why we love Celebrate Recovery, because we want to connect you to a person and a process that can help you find freedom and healing, find healing from the sufferings and the evil that you've experienced in life. But I just want to be clear about the approach that we're taking as we discuss something as difficult and as real as the pain evil causes because it's one of the biggest questions of how, how can this seeming inconsistency exist? And it's not a new question. You know, sometimes when we ask a question, we think that when the answer isn't simple, uh, that it's a new question. This problem has been written about for centuries and earlier this week, I typed in suffering in an Amazon book search, over 10,000 results of centuries of writing. This has been asked forever. Even people in the Bible had this question. The Bible does not shy away from this question, why does God allow suffering? The men and women of the Bible asked this. Hello. I mean, King David, David, he was described as a person after God's own heart. And I included his statements on this because he's not some casual guy who made it into the Bible. He's a man of faith who actually many, many Christians model their relationship with God after David's relationship with God. And here's something David said to God. He said, how long, O Lord, will you look on and do nothing? Rescue me from their fierce attacks. Protect me, my life, from these lions. And it's not literal lions. It's people who were terrorizing David. They were hunting him and trying to kill him. He would also say this in Psalm 82. How long will you hand down unjust decisions by favoring the wicked? He's saying to God, God, your decisions are unjust. 
And these are the questions that real men and women of faith have struggled with through time. God, are you paying attention? Why do bad things happen? Why does it seem like the guilty go unpunished? Why is there suffering? Why is there evil? Where does it come from? Why does God allow it, is what people ask. And really it comes down to another word, and that word is expectations. We use the word inconsistent when our expectations aren't met in every situation in life. When you're going through a trial, we have expectations. We say, God, if you're loving, God, if you're good, God, if you're just, you'll fix this problem for me. And when he doesn't fix it when or how we wanted him to, there's an issue there. And we say, God, you're inconsistent. And this is why our expectations on, about God cannot be based solely on what we feel, but on what God says about himself. And that's why, uh, where we're going to start this conversation today is at the beginning. The book of Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and uh, that word actually means beginnings. And we're going to talk next week about the Bible and um, about the reliability of it and uh, why we believe in what it says about creation and history and uh, things that are often disputed and why we believe it says what it says about Jesus and, and so many questions about the Bible. But today, let's go to the very beginning and see how the universe was created. In chapter one, chapter one of the Bible is essentially this epic poem that was passed down through generations and then recorded into scripture. And the very last line is where we're going to begin uh, today. When God created the universe and the world, it was good. Just write that in. When God created the world, it was good. Verse 31 says, then God looked over all that he had made and he saw that it was very good. Not according to our standard, but according to God's standard. It was good. It was paradise, just as he intended for it to be. And, and we think we get snapshots of this every once in a while. You know, if you've ever been to the mountains or the beach, or you've been to the tropics or an amazing place, you just get a snippet of it. You say, this is amazing. This is beautiful. This is good. This is how it intended to be. You know, on Monday, Lauren and I were just driving in the country right around here. It was a beautiful day. I just thought to myself, this is good. Like, this is just like a snapshot, just a little picture, something good. Maybe you've experienced that with uh, maybe a family day. You've had a day with your family that was uh, no drama, no dysfunction. It was just fun. It was meaningful. And you got to the end of the day and say, this is what it was intended to be. This is good. We get glimpses of it every now and again. But when God created the universe, it was all good, all the time, everywhere. That's what God does. That's who God is. And, and the pinnacle of his creation was Adam and Eve, mankind. And he placed them in this paradise, in this garden. And the important thing we need to know about them is that they were made in the image of God. Made in the image of God. And it's not that mankind uh, looks like God, but it's that Adam, he was perfect in health and he wasn't subject to death. So that made in the image of God refers to this immaterial part of humanity. It sets humans apart from the rest of creation. We see that in the creation story, that God is creating the universe. He's creating things that exist. He's creating animals. And then human beings are set apart. They're made in the image of God, that they have, they have, they have the ability to reason, Okay, and this is a reflection of God's intellect and freedom. Anytime someone invents something, anytime someone writes a book, paints a landscape, 
enjoys a symphony, calculates a sum, names a pet. They are proclaiming the fact that they are made in the image of God. And God was so generous with this to say, I'm going to instill in you freedom, rationale, reason. He says, I'm not going to hold back. I'm going to give you the ability to choose. And write that in. God created mankind in his own image, giving them the ability to choose. And when God created the world, he put mankind on earth and he expected them to multiply. That was the command he gave them. But his greatest desire was to have a relationship with mankind. And his desire was that he would love Adam and Eve. They would love him in return. That's what a relationship is. In order for someone to love you, they have to choose to do it. And God didn't want it pre-programmed. He didn't want it robotic. He didn't want robots. That's not fulfilling. That's not meaningful. That's not glorifying. God knew you cannot be truly loved unless there's some other option. You cannot be truly loved if you cannot also be truly hated. For it to be real, meaningful, glorifying, powerful love, it has to be a choice. And you cannot be truly loved if there isn't some other option. So the ability to choose means that there was another choice. And God, in his generosity, in his wisdom, God, he said, I'm going to give you the power to choose. And he put options in the, gar- in the garden with a choice. And the option was this tree. Let's just look at it in Genesis 2. It says, the Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him... You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Meaning a a physical death that you were not subject to death before, but now you will be subject to death and also a relational death that something will be broken in the connection. And now we look at the world around us. We look at creation, the relationship Uh, that we have with each other in the world, and and there's evil in the world. It's obviously no longer good. And we know where this story is headed, and that is that mankind used their freedom to rebel against God. They had a choice, and they chose wrong. But they were tempted along the way. Adam and Eve weren't God's only creation. God created angels to serve him. And at some point in the past, before this instance, a group of angels had rebelled in desire to be the center of attention. And Lucifer uh, rose up a rebellion in heaven and God sent him out. He is now called Satan. He is evil. And he was cast to earth. And his desire was to not just be cast to earth, but introduce that evil and that desire into the world through mankind and get people to follow him. And so he's tempting Adam and Eve, and he's saying, come here, eat of this tree, the tree God told them to avoid. And he says, you can. And Eve at first says, no, we can't. If we do, we will surely die. Satan says, no, 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 you won't die. You will know everything and be just like God. Not only made in the image of God, but you will be God. You will know everything he knows. You will be just like him. God's lying to you. He says, I'm telling you the truth. You can eat from this tree and you will be like God. And God is holding the best away from you. And what did Eve do? She was convinced. Let's look at it in Genesis 3. The woman was convinced 
She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. But notice this. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. I think sometimes the way this has been portrayed through cartoons or through whatever else is that it's just about this like insignificant tree and fruit. She knew what she was doing. She knew she was rebelling. She wanted the wisdom it would give her. And she took some of the fruit and ate it. And she gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it too. And they didn't break just some rule. They rebelled against God. They chose death, separation over life and hope in God. And in that moment, write this in, paradise was lost. And we see the effects of it today. Exactly what God said would happen. Pain is now a part of our lives. The earth itself is actually broken. Evil has affected the state of the earth. The ground, uh, now it doesn't naturally produce good things. It naturally produces weeds. And we have to work against it uh, to cultivate. And earth itself is broken. Earthquakes, destruction. The result of evil is all the pain we see around us. And everything is going poorly. And hello, it's only chapter 3. We're like on page two of the Bible and everything is broken and going wrong. And, and maybe you're like King David and your question becomes, God, how long will you look the other way? How long will you allow this? Or, or maybe God, if, if you knew paradise was going to be lost, if you knew this evil would happen, why did you follow through with creating it? Why create Satan if you knew he was going to fall? Why create us? Why did you allow it? And I think that question stems from a desire to know what God is like. God actually addresses Satan after the fall and tells him simply and sharply, yeah, you won today. Today you convinced my creation to rebel against me, but uh, today, uh, today evil has infected the world, but it will be defeated in the end. And he says, you will not win. You will be crushed. And that's the story of the rest of Scripture. The rest of it is God rescuing. The rest, the rest of it is, is our sin being what separates us from God, our rebellion being what separates us from God, and God in His goodness making things right. And He promised to send a Savior. He forecasted it even in the garden to reconcile the relationship between God and man. The last few pages actually of the Bible talk about what will happen ultimately. You see, God's final plan is not that uh, we believe in Jesus and go to heaven when we die and live happily ever after. God's final plan is to actually come back here to earth and fix everything. Ultimately, uh, we don't go up to heaven. Ultimately, heaven will come down to earth and there will be a new earth recreated to its original state. The paradise that was lost will be created and we will live in a new earth just as we did before the fall. God will win. He will win it back. And he's going to kick out all sin, kick out all rebellion, and that's how we'll live forever. God is rescuing all of creation. And that's what the story of Scripture is. That's what he's doing. So when it comes to the question of evil, who brought evil in? Who... Who introduced evil? When God created the world, it was good. When God created mankind, it was good. When God created Satan, he was good. It was us that decided, decided to use our freedom to bring in evil. Satan created evil and man brought it into the world. 
Satan created evil and man brought it into the world. God did not cause this. There is no darkness in God. There is no evil in God. We brought it into the world. And maybe you say, whoa, whoa, we brought it in. Don't bring me into this. It was Adam and Eve. If I would have been there, I'd make better choices. But you and I misuse our freedom and our image of God all the time. And we remake that decision all the time. And we do things that hurt ourselves, that hurt others. So, if Satan and our buy-in is the cause of all this evil, and if the solution is God bringing about reconciliation, bringing back all together, I think a snapshot about what God is like is going to help us understand this. Because this is the question of inconsistency. What are our expectations based on? And well, the first thing we need to know is that evil will be conquered. And the story of Scripture is how God is making that possible and how he will send a, a Savior to pay the penalty for our sins. He starts with a man named Abraham, and he says to Abraham, uh, I will send a Savior through your family line. And Abraham's family expands and becomes the Israelite nation, and God is working through his people, uh, this people group, to bring about the Savior of the world. And, and if that's confusing to you, that there's this overarching storyline to scripture, that there's this uh, overarching thing that God is doing, uh, I'd like to recommend a book to you. I don't do this very often, but I've seen a lot of you guys actually going through this and it being very meaningful, and it's called 30 Days to Understanding the Bible. 30 Days to Understanding the Bible. I think the author's name is Max Anders. The 30 Days to Understanding the Bible is just 30 exercises every day in this through this book, and by the end of the 30 days, you have a comprehensive understanding of what Scripture is telling and, and where you are in Scripture when you're reading and where you are in that story. And it makes very clear uh, all of that, how God used the Israelite people to bring about the Savior of the world. And one of the main figures in that is a man named Moses, and God is using Moses to free the Israelites from slavery and lead them out of Egypt. And God and Moses are getting very close. And God says, Moses, I'm actually going to reveal myself to you. And if you'll go up on the mountainside, I will, I will reveal who I am to you. And you can read the whole encounter in Exodus 34. But in this encounter, the, God says, the Lord passed in front of Moses calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I'm slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. Circle those words. God says what I'm like. I'm compassionate. I'm merciful. I'm loving. I'm faithful. And God himself, he, said, he calls himself our heavenly father. That he has these fatherly qualities of compassion and mercy and, and love and faithfulness. And some of you are fathers. Some of you are mothers. But when your child came into this world, they came out crying, not laughing. We knew before our child was born that they would go through suffering, that they would suffer in this life. But we wanted them anyway. Why? I mean, what is that? It's because there's something in us that knew that even if our child goes through pain, 
that sometimes it's still worth it because there's something in the way that we were designed to know that it's good for them. That we, uh, that the opportunity to express our love to our children, for them to express it back and receive it, we understand that even though there will be suffering, it's good for them to live through it so they can experience our love. So they can experience uh, the world in which God, that God created. To experience the goodness of God. And God loved the world so much that he didn't turn away when evil came over it. He came and suffered in our place. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death. So the death that God told Adam and Eve, you will surely die. Christ suffered that death for us, but he was raised to life in the Spirit. He stepped in and suffered, and he made, him subject, he made himself subject to suffering. So look up here. Is the existence of suffering and evil inconsistent with the existence of God? Could we really say that because there is evil in the world that there must be no God. No, suffering is consistent with who God, I mean, God allowed his son to suffer knowing that it would bring about something that would ultimately glorify his son. And the same is true of us. It's not inconsistent that we will suffer. In fact, God said that that's how Christianity will grow. It's going to grow through persecution. It's going to grow through suffering it those first century believers I mean that's how we know Jesus really rose from the dead is because they believed it unto death if God himself in Jesus Christ suffers so shall we but only for a moment Romans eight seventeen through 18 says that indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. We're suffering, but to those who love God, it doesn't compare to the glory we have in Christ. That broadens our view of why he would allow it. It broadens our view to say, God sees something that I don't see in this moment of suffering, and he sees something powerful. He sees something glorifying that far outweighs what we're going through now, that doesn't even compare. And... and, So does God have a good reason for allowing evil? Does God have a good reason for allowing evil? Yes. Now, I I can't look into your life and give you a, a single statement of why the suffering you're enduring, why he's allowing that in your life. I can't answer with certainty why God would allow that evil. But when I look at the character of God, when I look at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, it tells me what the answer is not. It tells me what the answer absolutely cannot be. And the answer cannot be because he doesn't love us. The answer cannot be because he isn't for us. The answer cannot be because uh, he's not working all things together for our good, for those who love him. The answer cannot be because he doesn't want his glory revealed in us. The answer cannot be that he doesn't have a good answer. 
This is why I tell you guys that when I wonder if God cares, when I wonder if God loves me, if I wonder if God is working, I don't look at my circumstance. I look to the cross. I look to the cross and see a consistent God whose unfailing love and mercy was willing to take the problem of evil to the cross, deal with it head on, and make a way for me to be saved. Does God have a good reason for allowing evil? He has a good reason. He has an answer. It's consistent with who he is. It's consistent with history. It's consistent with scripture. It's consistent within the life of the believer. It's consistent with Jesus. Where we see God has no darkness in him. That he is not the author of evil. He is the author of life. And he would make a way for us to have eternal life. God felt suffering with us. He took the problem of evil to the cross. And the closer I get to Jesus, the bigger my perspective gets and the clearer these pieces fit together. You know how I know that? Because again, this room will be full this weekend of people who have suffered. And when that suffering came, they said, I cannot get through this without God. So church, imagine with me what it would look like. A group of people who in suffering came, they said, I look to the cross where Jesus laid his life down. He took on my sin. He suffered death in my place so that I could have eternal life. And God is putting and will put his glory on display in response to this evil. And he will work all things together for good. And we'd be able to say, in the midst of suffering, that we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. May we be able to say that we consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Would you please bow your heads, close your eyes. And, And if from the outside looking in, if you're not a believer if you don't have a relationship with God, if you haven't been reconciled to God, I can see how this would not make sense to you. And right now you have a choice to make. Is it rebellion or surrendering to God? Is it God's way or your way? He wants to forgive you. He wants you to see how amazing it will be when he makes everything right. And you can be made right with God right now. When you say, God, I'm tired of running. Yes, I have things I'm wrestling with, but I'm turning to you. I'm believing that you are who you say you are, compassionate, merciful, slow to anger, unfailing in love, faithful. And God, I believe Jesus was the expression of all these things, that he lived a perfect, sinless life. There was no darkness in him. He was full of truth and love, compassionate, merciful, And he lived a perfect life and he died in my place on the cross. Suffered for me. And he rose from the dead proving that he had the power to forgive sins and give eternal life to anyone who believes. God, I believe it and I want to follow Christ. It's through Jesus' name I pray. Amen.